0: so last weekend we were in this room together and you might remember if you were here that uh, we were fasting together Uh, before that. And it was really just interesting to kind of watch how that all played out. First off, none of us were nearly as enthusiastic or attentive during the message as we normally would be. Like, like the coffee was not happening, and, and, and so I just want to apologize for that. Um, but what was really funny is as soon as we were done, the doors were open, and you guys were just, you were gone. You were out there, and you were consuming food and coffee, which is awesome. So thank you for your diligence in that. So I have a question for you guys. How many of you guys like new things? Like new stuff, right? Yeah, new stuff's kind of cool. Uh, there's a new iPhone that's actually coming out, I think, uh, Tuesday. So that I know some of you, Jeremy Waller, will be in line for that. Um, but we're on this, like, we're on the cusp of a lot of new things, a season of new things here. And we've just been through this period of time where we've been digging into the spiritual disciplines. And we spent a lot, we spent all summer there, really. But it was really cool, at least for me, I hope it was for you too, how God used that to shape new things. Uh, in my life, but I've definitely spoken with many of you, and you've had kind of the same feedback that There were things that God taught you and that showed you and how those things work together and has created a newness in your life, so to speak, in your relationship with him. And so we've got some other new stuff coming up, and I just want to touch on these things very briefly just to get them in kind of in your brain so you're thinking about them. But October for us is prayer month, and in the past we've done a lot of things with that, and this year it'll be a little different in that it's going to be directed by your elders and the leadership of D.C., and they've got some special things in the works for that. November, uh, we're calling November the season of Thanksgiving. And normally we'll take just like this little portion at the end of the month and we'll say, oh, yay, Thanksgiving, turkey, let's eat some stuff and celebrate, right? Well, we're going to actually take the whole month and we're going to be very intentional about uh, incorporating A season of thanksgiving into everything that we do here And so you're going to see that and be able to participate in that But the purpose of that is actually to prepare us for the end of the year, right? For advent, uh, the anticipation of the arrival of Yeshua, our Messiah, of Jesus, right? And so we spend that whole month of December getting ready for that, so to speak Uh, We have Hanukkah that happens where uh, we're celebrating the light of the world And then we celebrate Christmas, the arrival of the light of the world And we talk about themes like hope and joy and peace and love And so we have all kinds of really cool things in the work for that, too. So it's like the season of new stuff. But that leaves us with September, the rest of September. Of course, John just mentioned DC Wow at the end of the month where we're going to put our faith into action and we're going to serve others together. But today... We're actually going to start something new. And this is not my normal MO. In fact, I'm just going to tell you I'm super uncomfortable right now. Because we're going to start a new book and then we may jump away from it for like months and then come back to it. It's really weird and my brain's going, "Ah, I don't really like this very much. But God's saying, I don't care. So here we are. Um, We're going to start a new series and study this book. It's a little scary. Uh, but we're going to take time today just to set the context and the setting. And so I have to take a minute here and just say that this is hard. This part is hard for me because it's like a lot of information. And so sometimes when there's a lot of information, you have certain people that are like, oh, man, just tell me a story, dude. Come on. So this, this message today is like a muffin. Not like one of those little tiny muffins that you get in the package, but like the best super huge muffin that you might buy somewhere that's been specially prepared. Muffins, good muffins are dense, right? Good muffins, like you have to, it takes some work to get those bad boys open. And then you slather some butter on there, right? And we're not talking margarine or any of that junk. We real butter, Okay. And depending on your choice of flavorings in that muffin, it could be chocolate chips, it could be whatever you want, okay? It's sky's the limit, it's your choice. But you have this very dense muffin that has all these beautiful, delicious little surprises throughout it. And that's exactly what this is today, okay? There's, there's some dense stuff in here. Like, there's going to be part of this, you're going to be like, you know, dude, I had school all week, I don't need to come to school on the weekend. It is what it is. But here's what I want you to remember in all this as we start to eat our muffin together, right? We're going to be talking about real human beings, people that actually lived, people that walked this planet together, people that walked this planet with Jesus, people that experienced major life events in the formation of what we believe. Right, people. We're here because of the folks that we're going to talk about today. So I don't want us to like just blow past that. We're going to start the book of James. You probably already figured that out. But to me, thinking about these folks, especially James in particular, a man that was brothers, right? He was Jesus's brother, walking the earth with him, and the things that he saw and experienced, and how that transformed his life. I want to know what this dude has to say, right? Because it's going to help me. He was there in that moment, and to me, that's really exciting, and so I hope it will be for you today, but I really feel like we need to pray to get this thing started. So, God, thank you so much for this opportunity that we have to open your word, and we are so fortunate in this country, in this world, that, that we have multiple translations, God, that we can have a stack of Bibles, In any format that we choose. And so many times we can take your word for granted because of that availability. So I pray that today that uh, this would become treasure for us. That you would open our minds and our hearts to receive whatever you want to teach us. That you would help this to be more than just words on a page or a part of history, God. But that uh, we could join in this story. That we could see ourselves in this story. And that we could see ourselves as your people. So, God, I pray that you would breathe life into our hearts and into the study today. And we ask all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. So, just a little bit of background. The author of the book, James. We have the name James here. Or James the Just, according to church history. And they call him that because of his rock-solid example of obedience and his righteous example of living. Now, in some of your Bibles, depending on what translation you have, uh, you might not have James. It might say Jacob there in your Bible. And you might be going, well, what's up with that? Which is it, James or Jacob? Well, if it's Jacob, it's actually correct. His Hebrew name is Yaakov, which is translated to Jacob. And so there's a little bit that I want to say about this because I feel like it's important. That was actually the name of the writer of this text. And strangely, this would normally be translated into the name Jacob. In fact, in other places in Scripture, it is Translated into Jacob rather than in James. And this isn't necessarily uncommon in that we see names change, right? Uh, We know that Jesus, his real Hebrew name, the name his mama called him, right, was Yeshua. We know that. And so over time, through this translation process, it was actually transliterated. In other words, the name was taken and it was formed into a way that would sound right to other ears. And there's more to it than that, but that's kind of in a nutshell version. So that's not unusual per se. It was merely transliterated or constructed to sound right to Hearers in another language, so to speak But This name right here Jacob, right? Jacob To James is not a direct translation So that led me To ask the question, well why did this happen And is it important? Can we learn something from this? And I think that we can. There are a lot of opinions Just like anything, right? There are a bunch of opinions As to why this occurred uh, But one thing that we all need to just For the baseline here, we need to just all agree That the English language is weird, Okay? It's just this weird language. There are lots of rules, and then most of those rules, we go ahead and break them with our own language. There's no baseline. We're just going to throw words nilly-willy around, and then we've got all these words that we've adapted and adopted from other languages as well. And so we've got this hodgepodge language, and it's been that way for a long, long time. And so I'm going to give you three viewpoints on why this happened, and just to let you know, I think these could all be right. Funky English is my first one. These are all Fs, so you'll remember them. Some believe that uh, this whole idea of translating to James was a result of Wycliffe. When he actually translated the Bible, he translated from the Latin Vulgate. This is teaching here. I understand that, but stick with me. He did that at a time when English was taking shape, right? So in the 5th and 6th centuries, and then later on in the 13th and 14th centuries, you had all of these languages from Norse people and from Germanic peoples all filtering their way into English. And so some believe that all of this influence uh, from Latin, uh, Celtic, and then Norman Vikings, all these strains of dialect combined to cause this moment where he made the choice to translate to James. So that's the first one, funky English, which would be a great name for a band, by the way. Second, French filter. Okay, here's the other one. Many scholars believe that the name changes, James's name, it becomes James as it goes through all these filters of various languages. It actually goes from Hebrew to Greek to Latin to French and then finally to English. And it's this succession of languages that accounts for the changes. And I'll just show it to you here. I'm not going to try and pronounce all these for you. But if uh, you want to study this on your own, you can check that out. So that's another possible explanation for how this happened. And then the third um, reason that some give is called favorite king. And here's what that's about. Others hold to the position that when the translators were working on the Bible... Um, King James, right, of Scotland, he had said, listen, I want you to make a translation of the whole Bible, and I want you to stick as close as you can to the original uh, Hebrew and Greek as possible, when he ordered this, and it was in 1604, right? So when this happened, the translators that were working on it, some people believed in order to curry favor, since they kind of had some options for names there, they decided to name the dude that was closest to Jesus, but not quite Jesus, but the closest to Jesus, We'll just name him James in honor of the king. Some people believe that the translators made that choice. There are others that actually take that a step further and say that King James himself wanted to see his own name into the Bible as close to Jesus as possible. And so he made some type of an edict or order to make that happen. And just so you know, I tried to study that one. I want to present it to you, but I couldn't find anything conclusive for our scholarship on that one in particular. So here's the question we're all asking right now. Well, why does this matter? Why do we care? Why do I care that we call him James now? I mean, James is cool, right? Yeah, sure, sure it is. James is a great name. If your name is James, great name. We love it. So why? Why does this matter? Here's why it matters. Because it shows us that at some point along the way in our faith, there was an attempt to distance the New Testament from Hebrew or Aramaic influence. And that's something that all the scholars that I was reading agreed upon. So when we read the name James... And we have no knowledge that his real name was Jacob. We have no knowledge that he was even Jewish. There's some really dangerous things that can happen because we can divorce him from his Jewish cultural background. And when that's minimized, it changes the way that we read his letter. It totally changes the shape of the letter that we're about to study. So it becomes even more important when we learn that scholars consider the book of James to be the most Jewish book in the New Testament. Did you know that? So if we didn't have the knowledge that a Jewish guy was writing this book, we might miss all kinds of important things there because this book is full of references. In fact, it has more allusions, some say, to Old Testament and Tanakh references than any other book, including the Gospels. And so you have James making allusions to the Torah and to wisdom literature like Proverbs. In fact, some people say that this book that he's written is kind of this perfect sandwich of Proverbs and everything that Jesus had to say. The Proverbs of the New Testament, some even call it. Here's another thing that I didn't know until I studied this. James is also believed to be the first book of the New Testament ever written. Think about that for just a second, what I just said. Think about all the books that you have in the New Testament. The brother of Jesus went on record before the Gospels, before any of the letters of Paul, that's kind of a big deal. Because to me, what this says is that he was writing closest to the events that happened. And you have a guy that has inside knowledge here. Now, I want to be clear. I believe the word we hold in our hands, guys, I believe it's exactly what God wanted us to have. I believe that the word that we hold in our hands uh, has everything that we need, everything that he wanted us to have. It's you know useful for teaching, reproof, all the things we talk about all the time. I'm not here to cast doubt on scholarship or any of that stuff. As a matter of fact, I think this is the opposite. I think that it gives James even more credibility when we learn these things about him. But the Jewishness of this book is also this important factor for our consideration as we begin to eat this muffin together, right? It's a big deal, this Jewishness uh, that James brings. So that context will change the way that we read this. And so we know that James was writing to a group of Jewish believers that had not yet been separated from worshiping in synagogues with their brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. That Jerusalem, this church, or this group of believers, or whatever you want to call it, was still the center of Christian and Jewish faith. Like, all this stuff happening together at the same time. And so, many of you guys know who Beth Moore is. She's an author and a Bible teacher. She's great. Here's what she had to say about it. James wrote this letter, not as a Jewish Christian, but as a Christian Jew. Think about that for just a second. James wrote this letter not as a Jewish Christian, but as a Christian Jew. James hoped that all Jewish people would embrace Christ as the Messiah. James hoped that all Jewish people would see Yeshua for who he was, as the Messiah. But here's what's really cool, and we're going to see this hopefully today, that James' vision is actually going to expand to include not just the Jewish people, but all people. So we owe a lot to James, all of us in this room today. These facts are really important. Because they take, you know, it's kind of like a coloring book. When you open a coloring book, you have this flat page. Helen knows what I'm talking about. She colors pictures for me sometimes. You've got this flat page, and it's like this line drawing. And, and, and there it is in black and white. And you know what it is. You know what it's about. But it's just this flat, two-dimensional thing. But when you start to color that, you start to make choices about the colors that you apply to it, and the people that are really the bomb at doing coloring books can add all that really cool shading to kind of bring that Disney princess to life, or whatever it is, right? I know some of you are out there. There's something about that, that when you bring color and depth and nuance to this, it, it brings it to life. It shows us things that... Maybe we've never noticed before, and helps us understand that he's a real man. So another thing that I keep thinking about as I'm looking at James is like, this guy was Jesus' brother. What was that like? Like to be the kid brother of Jesus. But more than that, James is also this crucial link that makes our salvation possible. And so we'll talk about that in a minute. I'm gonna set it aside over here. So what else do we know about him? James who? Who is this guy? James or Jacob And I'm going to call him James Just for the sake of clarity Because that's what most of us know him as In church tradition and all that stuff So there are a ton of Jacobs That are mentioned in the New Testament uh, But this writer James Jacob is unique Here's how he introduces himself As he opens his book Because we're going to talk about this James 1.1 James, a servant of God And of the Lord Jesus Christ To the twelve tribes In the dispersion Greetings Right? Greetings. So one of the things about New Testament writers, and especially anyone that was writing at that time to a group of people, the way that they would introduce themselves at the beginning of their letter was important. It it meant something. Um, It reaffirmed connections that they might have to the people that they were writing to. So, like, they might write to this group of people and they say, and by the way, I know Larry and Sam and John that hang out there with you guys. Like, they're trying to establish this credibility. It offers up credibility. It also establishes their authority. So, like, in a lot of Paul's letters, it kind of reads a little bit like, my name is Paul. I know a lot of stuff. Here's why you should listen to me and why. Right? Here's what I have to say. Here's why you should listen. But James is different. He gives this simple introduction and he doesn't even mention the thing that we're all thinking right now. The thing that I would totally drop if I were writing a letter that I wanted people to read. And I were James. Uh, by the way, my brother's kind of the Messiah, so you really should listen to this letter that, that you're going to read. Because, you know, I mean, we're, I mean <laughs> we're like this. so That's the thing we would all do, right? Jesus is my brother. I mean, I'd be telling everybody. I'd be going down to the market. Hey, man, you know the Messiah? He's my brother. Hey, have a free cup of coffee, man. All right. Love that guy. I mean, reminding the readers of this letter would certainly boost his credibility, right? You would think. In fact, James could have said a lot of things. He could say he was the brother of Jesus. He could say he was a rabbi among rabbis because we know from studying him that he was really knowledgeable about the word. He could have even said, you know what, I'm the apostle, man. I'm like the main dude from the church of Jerusalem. I mean, you know. So you should read this. He could have mentioned any of these things and more to establish his authority and the claims and even the commands that he's about to drop in this letter because it is full of them. Like I said, it is a dense muffin. But he avoids all of those and he chooses a credential that tells us a great deal about him and about his letter. He introduces himself. As the servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, he presents himself humbly. We could stop there because that's a lesson, right? He doesn't resort to any of those other things. He's like, guys, you know what? I'm just a servant of my older brother <laughs> who happens to be the Messiah. Of course, God. Both. Like, I'm just here to serve. What if we could live our lives, folks, in such a way that that introduction would be true of all of us as well? Like you walk into the room, man, I'm just a servant of God and of the Messiah. I'm just here to help. And that's what we're going to be doing at the end of the month when we go out there on the square. It's not about picking up trash. It's about being a humble servant of God and our Messiah, showing that to people. So James introduces himself here, but the rest of Scripture actually has a few things to say about him. And so I just want to show you this very briefly. His name appears only eight times in the New Testament, but they're significant appearances. And they tell us a lot about James. Um, and I've given you a, a couple of clues there to some of those that we'll be talking about. But his name is actually first mentioned in Mark 6, 3, but also Matthew 13, 55, because they're kind of a parallel thing. But they're mentioned in this narrative about Jesus being rejected in his hometown of Nazareth. About, you know, prophets not being received in their hometowns. And so it's because of verses like this that John has this to say. John 7 5, talking about Jesus, for not even his brothers believed in him. So if we're doing, if we're following the clues, like in Blue's clues, what we're learning here, a clue, a clue. We're learning that when Jesus was around, it seems that James didn't follow him or didn't believe in him, as far as we know. We can infer that from these verses. But we know that at some point something changes in James because that's not the case at the end of his life. History tells us that by the time that this messianic body of believers in Jerusalem begins to develop, that James is the leader. And we owe a ton to James, because if it weren't for him, we wouldn't even be here today. In Acts 10, this is one of my favorite stories, so I've got to rein it in, because I want to tell all of it really bad. But here's the deal. So you've got this moment where Peter has this weird thing happen. He meets this man named Cornelius, but there's a whole part of it. Before that, Cornelius is like worshiping the one true God, uh, which was uncommon in these days because he was a Gentile. We know that he was a devout man who feared God with all of his household. He gave alms generously to the people and he prayed continually to God. That's Acts 10 too. So in a nutshell, God does this really cool and kind of weird thing. He uses a zoo in a sheet, this vision of a zoo in a sheet, to get Peter's mind in the right frame to receive some divine appointments of these people that are going to stop by and tell them to go hang out with some Gentiles. And so Peter, of course, is obedient in that. He ends up in front of Cornelius and all of his household. And when I say all of his household, we're talking about uh, his wife, his kids, but also his servants, right? There would have been a lot of people there because he was a successful man. And so he's there, and Peter stands up in front of all these people, and there's a part of Peter who's like, I don't even know what I'm doing here. Like, these guys are Gentiles, you know, but I'm just going to be obedient. So he starts to tell the story of Jesus. He's like, he stands up in front of him, he's like, guys, Jesus, he, he lived and walked this earth, and he was the Messiah, and he died, and he rose again, his life and his death and his resurrection. And all of a sudden, all of these Gentile people, like the Spirit just falls on him, right? And Peter's traveling with all these companions that are also Jewish, and they're watching this thing happen, and they're like, what? These guys are Gentiles, and the Lord's Spirit just fell on them right in front of us. I don't even know what to do with this man. We wouldn't know what to do with it either, by the way. So if you want to hear this whole story, there's actually a sermon several months ago that I taught on it. You can look that up. But God's Spirit's being poured out on all of these Gentiles, and everyone's left wondering, what do I do with this? Like, all these Jewish guys are like, I I don't even know how to handle this. How 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 do we, what do we do with these people? And the thing is, it was happening in other places, too. Other people were reporting all of these experiences where people had been filled with the Spirit. Gentile people. And it was stirring up controversy. There was this tension in the Jerusalem congregation of these Jewish believers that believed in Jesus, right? They're like, well, what do we do with these Gentiles? Can we include them? And if we do, how would that salvation work? And the leaders didn't agree. There was disagreement. And some of them didn't even think it was possible at all. Like... I don't know, that may be what happened, but sorry. It might be hard for us to understand this today because of where we are, you know? I mean, in all of the years of history that are behind us. But in this time, especially to to the Jewish people who we've looked at their story over and over how they would be like right on with God and then they would start to fall away and they would fall into idolatry and then they would blow up for a while and they would cry out for help and then God would save them and they would be back with God for a while and they just kept going around the mountain, right? We've studied that over and over again. And so we're here in this moment in history where these guys are taking being set apart very seriously. They avoided table fellowship with pagans and idolaters for this very reason. It wasn't that they were jerks. They were trying to honor God's commands. They didn't want that same thing to happen to them again. The big issue here was social relationship between the Jews who believed in Jesus and the Gentiles who believed in Jesus. And how that would all work out and best honor God. That's really what they were looking for. How can we best honor God in this moment? so there's huge debate going on whether the gentiles could be included or if they needed to completely convert over to judaism which for all the lucky adult males meant being circumcised Woo! you'd really sound like that right hey we're gonna have a men's retreat and by the way (laughs) it's gonna be fun So the question was, okay, we've got all these people, so do they have to come in and be circumcised and adhere to the entire Torah of Moses? So all of the bigwigs of this early messianic community, they gather and they're going to come to some type of conclusion. Like, we've got to talk about this and figure this thing out. And so Acts 15 tells the story. You can read the whole thing on your own. But Peter basically says, guys, why are we making this so complicated? I just told you what I saw. It was the Spirit of God. I was there. I felt it. I felt it before. You might remember my fine work from the upper room. He didn't say that. I'm making that part up. Guys, why are we making this so complicated? Why do we want to place all of these things on them when it's obvious that God is pouring out his spirit on them too? So then Paul and Barnabas begin to share these similar stories of all these signs and wonders and all these things that they've experienced in their travels. Guys, you would not believe what God is doing among the Gentiles. It's amazing. So the Bible doesn't necessarily tell us who else spoke in that meeting, but I imagine it was a long one. And I'm sure that there were lots of other people that had things to say. So once everybody had busted out the fours and against and the maybes and all the opposing viewpoints, because that's how these things work, the room falls silent. And the Bible actually says that. The room falls silent. And then James steps up to the mic. Right? And James defends Peter's position That these Gentiles should not be required to be circumcised or embrace the entire Torah by backing the position of the Apostle Peter with Scripture. Because see, Paul and Barnabas and Peter, they came in and everything that they talked about was experiential. These are all the things we've experienced. These are all the things that we've seen. But James says, hey, you know what? This is scriptural, actually. Acts 15. After they finished speaking, James replied, brothers, listen to me. So he's quoting scripture there. And then he goes on to say, Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. So let me try and summarize what's going on here for you. James brings in Scripture to back up these experiences that the other apostle had had, saying, listen, guys, it's obvious that God is doing something here. And guess what? He's been doing something, guys, for a while now. We can point backward and we can see that he even told us he was going to do something. And we know that Moses had people in cities that believed also. God is up to something here, guys. So what are the minimum things that these people would have to do to have fellowship with us? That's his question. And what they come up with is four things. Say no to food, sacrifice to idols, adhere to Jewish practices of food preparation, and be sexually pure. And basically, he says at the end, you know, let them learn the rest along the way. Now, it's important to point out that it's not just these four things, right, that that we're held to. I mean, obviously, there are other things in Scripture. I mean, the laws of Noah, the Ten Commandments. I mean, just because they did this stuff doesn't mean they can go out and murder people if they want to, right? We need to be clear about that. There were other things that are incumbent upon all mankind within God's Word that we should all adhere to. Most of our laws in almost every country are founded on the Ten Commandments for this very reason. They're basic tenets of law that God expects of every human being. So the short list doesn't mean that they can steal all they want to or anything like that. But these statutes are important because they're chosen to provide two things. And it's going to seem like a paradox, but I'll explain it. They're chosen to provide separation. And they're chosen to create unity. What's up with that? Well, first... They want to provide separation from the old pagan lives that these men and women had as idolaters and all the things that would come with continued association with those folks. Because in truth, in many of these cities, there were idols all over the place. I mean, every street corner, we've talked about this before. It would be really hard to avoid eating meat that was sacrificed to an idol because most of it was, especially in the Roman cities. So they wanted these folks to be separated from that whole way of living. All four of these things provide that. And then the second reason is unity. They wanted to create unity with these folks among the Jewish believers in Jesus. Like the Jewish believers in Jesus and these Messianic Gentiles. They wanted to create unity so that they could share in table fellowship and good confidence. These guys wanted to be able to walk into the house of one of these new believers and not have to worry about what they were eating, right? And they also wanted these guys to be able to sit down at the table with them and fellowship and not have to worry about what they'd just eaten. It seems strange to us maybe because we're not used to thinking that way, but it's very, very important. So here's the deal, though. Without this moment, we might all be lost. It's easy for us to miss how groundbreaking this is because of our distance in history and our distance even to some degree for probably most Christians in the world our distance from dietary laws and other things. But this would have been a big deal. And I want to read this because I want to make sure that I say it right. James does something important here. He grants Gentile Christians like you guys and like me equal status through Jesus. It's in this moment on record that we become co-heirs with this rich inheritance this ruling made all of us eligible for salvation through Messiah. Maybe you've never heard that before. It was new information for me. You're like, well, didn't Jesus do that when he came? Yeah, absolutely. But it was this moment when these guys said, hey, come on in. You're a part of the family. Do these things and you're in. It. Our salvation, this ruling made us eligible in their eyes for salvation through Messiah. So without this moment, we might still all be lost, wandering the world apart from God, if it hadn't been for James. And here's the thing. Remember I was telling you, like, you've got this room full of all these people, competing personalities, like uh, guys that wanted things to happen, guys that didn't want things to happen, a lot of people that were in between and confused. It would have taken just the right humble spirit to be in that room to step up to the mic and say, okay, guys, we've heard everything you have to say. Now, here's what I have to say. It would have taken someone with a great deal of respect from all of the other people represented in that room. James's story continues, but not for much longer, because we learn from church history that when the local leaders... Because we read about Paul all the time and how they were trying to entrap him and stuff so that they could basically take him out. When that didn't work and Paul got away, they turned their attention to James. Some of the scribes and Pharisees took James up to the pinnacle of the temple. Interestingly, that's where Jesus was also tempted. So they're there at the top, the very top of the, the temple, and they're like, listen. In fact, they yell it so everyone can hear. You, just one. So even they recognize that James is a just man. We should be able to have confidence in your teaching. And this is a paraphrase, by the way. But you are leading the people astray, telling them to follow Yeshua, the crucified one. Tell us here and now, what is the truth about Yeshua? And do you really believe that he's the Messiah? So all the people are watching this thing happen. And I don't know if they're like holding him over the edge or what that looked like. But it was a tense moment. And here's what James says. And he answered with a loud voice. Why do you ask me concerning Yeshua, the Son of Man? He himself sits in heaven at the right hand of the great power and is about to come upon the clouds of heaven. Not a whole lot of wiggle room or doubt in that statement, right? They wanted him to renounce his faith, and James responds, Have I not been clear about this? So here's what's really cool Because their plan backfires Church history tells us And everybody down there Hearing James bust out this testimony All of these different people Start to believe because of it Because of his fearlessness In the face of this threat So they finally just decide To chuck him off the temple To hopefully make the people Afraid to follow him And that's what they do But here's the deal They throw him off the temple He hits the ground And he doesn't die He's hurt Really bad But he doesn't die. So he wasn't killed. So they start to pick up stones and chuck them at him to take him out. And while this was happening, church history tells us that James turned and knelt down and said, I entreat you, Lord God, our father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Does that sound familiar? That's in Luke 23, where that comes from. If you want to look it up. So while they're throwing these rocks at him, and he's praying for them, one of the priests cries out, Stop! What are you doing? The just one is praying for you. And finally, one of them took a club. It was a club that they would beat like rugs and close out on the line. And they strike him in the head and they kill him. And some have even said that that was a mercy that they were performing for him. James gave everything for the cause of Christ. Now remember at the beginning of this message when we were talking about this and I said, there's no indication that James followed his brother while he was alive. Like, he wasn't on that page. That's the indications that we get from The writings that we have. And it makes sense, right? I mean, it'd be hard for us to be convinced that our brothers or sisters were the Messiah. I mean, I'm sure Jesus did brotherly stuff like noogies and all that, you know. So, what happened? What happened to James to change his mind and really to change his heart? I mean, it would take a lot for me to believe that my brother was the word made flesh or the creator of the universe. Yeah, right? Although some brothers walk around like they are. Just, just be honest. So what happened? What changed for him? What caused him to believe this to the point where he would give up everything, even his life in this moment? I will suggest to you that he saw the resurrected Jesus. For James, seeing, was believing. And we have record of this in 1 Corinthians fifteen seven. And then he, meaning Jesus, this is after his resurrection, appeared to James and then to all the apostles. So Jesus shows up to chat with his brother first. Paul's the one that tells us this, by the way. And if you remember, he was changed after he saw the resurrected Jesus when he was on the road to Damascus. And he's implying that the same thing happened here. That this resurrection appearance of Jesus in James' life was the thing that caused him to change. It would have to be something supernatural to convince me, right? Because, uh, you know, (laughs) it's my brother, my sister. You have to be so convinced that you would die for that. And the reason is, folks, is because the change was a supernatural one. The change that happened in James's heart was supernatural. So in the coming weeks as we begin to study this book of James, it's all about a book that is about faith in action. Seeing our faith in action. About living out what we believe. And we must realize that this letter didn't come from just a guy that decided to write some stuff down for us. This letter comes from a dude who lived it. James gave everything, including his life, for the glory of God and the cause of Christ, just like he began his letter, right? As a servant. So, if you're a Christian here in this room today, this is a challenge because we're supposed to look different than the rest of the world. James is going to challenge us in some very practical ways. If you are into practical teaching, James is your book because he's clear. He cuts through all of the theology and stuff, and he just starts dropping stuff. This is what you're supposed to do. This is what it's supposed to look like. If you're not doing this, well, you should be doing this. I mean, it's just like over and over and over again. It's very much like Proverbs in that way. So if we're Christians, we're supposed to look different than the rest of the world. And James is going to teach us how. Our relationship with God is more than something we think. It's more than something we say, guys. It's something we do. It requires action. It spurs action in us. And our lives are supposed to be lived as proof of the resurrected Savior for the world to see. Because for the world, seeing is believing. Imagine if you lived your life in such a way that people had no doubt that Jesus was real. I mean, think about James on the edge of that temple hanging over the side. And he's like, I don't care what you do. It's true. And it changed lives below as they saw him living that out. That he was going to face whatever came. For the world, seeing is believing. Our love for God should show in the way that we treat others, in the way that we love others. And in the way that we serve it, serve other people too. So what about you today? Have you seen Jesus? And if you have, does it show? Seeing is believing. Let's be believers. Would you guys bow your hearts with me? Father God, we love you. And I thank you for men like James that were obedient to the end um, in ways that maybe we've even thought about God if we were ever faced with a moment where we had to stand up for you in front of people or our lives were being threatened and we were being forced to deny you. We know around the world every day there are men and women that face that choice. And here we are, God, blessed in many ways to live in a country that we have a freedom of choice. But Lord, as times have gotten harder and as more opposing views have risen up around us, it can be a challenge to live for you in that environment. So Father, I pray that As we open this book and study it, that it wouldn't just be information, but that it would be transformation for us. That there wouldn't be things that we're doing, God, out of obligation. But that the things we do could be a libation, God, that we would pour out to you, that we would serve you, that we would dump every part of our hearts and our lives out to glorify you, God our Father, and to proclaim the glory of a risen Messiah. But God, we know that just like James and Paul and others in Scripture, we cannot do that alone. We need something supernatural. We need your spirit in our lives. We need you to blow through our lives like that hurricane we sing about this morning. And the picture of that tree in that song. And the tree does not break. It bends, but it doesn't break, God. So may the power of your spirit blow through our lives like that wind. And that you would not just transform us, but that you would transform all of the folks around us in our lives. I'm so excited about what you're doing. And I can't imagine what it was like to be in that room in Scripture when all of the reports are coming in about you dumping your spirit out on Gentiles. And God, it's exciting because we're hearing those things now, too. That you are alive and you are well and that you are doing something. So we submit ourselves as your humble servants and we say, Do what you will. Put us in the right place at the right time, God. Help us to be obedient. Whatever it takes, we are yours. And all honor and glory go to you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. What?